0: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC Podcast.
3: There is something about activists' work being rooted in futurity and that that is actually maybe something that we don't always talk about but is a core part of this work is actually being able to imagine that a better world is possible and then going and going and getting it.
0: Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Thomas Leblanc and I'm Trana Winter. That was Cyrus Marcus, where you just heard artist, activist, professor and co-founder of Black Lives Matter Canada. Joining Cyrus in our conversation today is fellow co-founder Rodney DeVerles. We had a really amazing conversation with both of them about art as activism and reimagining pride. You'll get to hear that a bit later in the show. I don't think I'll ever
2: forget June 2020 between, you know, quarantine, we were still in lockdown because of the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, which happened at the end of May, and the daily marches. They were in marches every night. And I think for a lot of queer people, because that happened in June, people made the connection between the need for justice and the roots and the history of the Pride movement. The year before was 2019, right? So that was the year we celebrated 50 years of the Stonewall uprising. The Stonewall Inn was the center of this world in the West Village in New York in the late 60s where trans folks and sex workers were hanging out. And of course, they were harassed by the police day after day. And that morning of June 28, 1969, the police raided the place and the folks who were there were just fed up they they start rioting and they start this uprising that actually lasted a few days. It lasted until July 3rd. So this is why the relationship between the queer community and the police is so fraught. And that,
0: that is something I did not know growing up. You right. Know? Growing up, Pride was always presented as just a party. Mm. That's really how I a always tea, saw it. A tea dance yeah. in downtown Montreal. Honestly, I remember seeing you know, like TV commercials for Pride when I was around 18 and like just starting to live out that side of my life and seeing advertisements for the parties and the singers and performers who are going to be doing shows and, you know, the big outdoor drag shows, they're I really don't recall anyone ever talking about the roots of pride. But you know what
2: I think, though? I think the community was in such post-traumatic stress disorder from the AIDS crisis, from police brutality. I think they chose to ignore a really painful part of the history. And I think Mm. today is time to, like, bring this back into pride. And I think to remember that, like, our community is way more
0: diverse than what we were led to believe growing up. (sighs) you <sighs> To be honest, I think that I've always been more of a lone wolf kind of person. I've never really seen myself in Pride. Part of that is my own privileges and maybe not needing community in the same way that other people might. But I remember there was this one Pride year, I think it was 2017, I was in Toronto and I was doing live coverage of the Trans March for, at the time, called Daily Extra, now just known as Extra. Magazine. Hello, Trana Winter here for Daily Extra at Pride Toronto's Trans March. And so I was in the march. Um, We had like a camera person filming it. It was like a very DIY thing and it was being streamed on Facebook Live. And basically my job was just to go up to people participating in the march, talk to them, how they feel, you know, what this moment means to them. And it really took me outside of my comfort zone, like having to like go up to strangers and talk to them about feelings and all of that kind of stuff. I
1: love that it's a chance to be with people who are like me and I feel supported and I feel courageous and brave and I just feel love and safety
0: and just so much. You said it all. Honestly, I I got to See what pride could mean, Mm. you know, because for me up until that point, it didn't really mean much to me. Mm. But I remember that night very vividly talking to all different kinds of people from all different groups, because within the trans community, there is the disabled community, there is the black community, there is the Asian community, there is the indigenous community. Like, it's the trans community is not just this monolithic thing. There's so many intersections.
1: As a trans woman of color, it's been really hard for me to express myself. But like coming to terms with myself and being able to be surrounded by so much love and people makes me feel so proud. I'm very
0: grateful to be. You're gonna make me cry, honestly. You're amazing. And that night really gave me a new perspective on. This does matter. These marches Mm. do matter. This coming together really is powerful. And I remember that I could feel the energy in the air. And it was a kind of togetherness that I had never experienced before. Happy Pride. Happy Pride to you too. And people have to
2: realize that the reason why there are pride marches is because in 1970, one year after the Stonewall uprising, people wanted to remember that. Like they didn't want to forget what happened a year like before and they created the first pride march in New York on Christopher Street. And then eventually there was one in LA and then later in the seventies in other cities and eventually
0: Montreal and Toronto. With everything that happened last year, we really do have this opportunity to reimagine mm-hmm. what Pride could be in the future and what we want it to be. All of this to say I am in awe of people
2: like Ronnie DeVerles and Cyrus Marcus Ware, two co-founders of Black Lives Matter Canada, who have been deeply, deeply involved in the movement
0: for a very long time. Cyrus Marcus Ware is an assistant professor at the School of the Arts, McMaster University. He's also a Vanier scholar, visual artist, activist, curator and educator. And one of his biggest achievements was helping to initiate the Trans Fathers to Be course, which was the first course in North America for trans men considering parenting. Rene DiVerlus is a Haitian
2: Canadian, born in Haiti, trained as a dancer in Florida and then moved to Canada. He's worked all over the country, Calgary, Toronto, Vancouver. And one thing that I find so interesting about his practice is that he really connects dance dance and activism. Rodney and Cyrus co-edited and co-wrote Until We Are Free, Reflections on Black Lives Matter in Canada with Sandy Hudson. And actually I, I became aware of them through Sandy because I've been following her for a few years. She's an essential writer and media critic and you should definitely
0: check out her work. We spoke to Rodney and Cyrus on May 25th, the one year anniversary to the day of the murder of George Floyd.
1: You. I mean, today is the one yeah. year anniversary of, um, of George Ford's untimely passing. And so I'm a lot of things today. Very reflective, um, very heavy. But I'm here. I'm here with y'all.
3: I you, am. I, yeah, I'm, I'm well. You know, I woke up this morning uh, thinking about the anniversary and thinking about the anniversary of the uprising, thinking about the anniversary of... Of all of those people from their beds and from their homes and, and from the streets, you know, coming together and saying we want something different. And so, I mean, George Floyd should be alive today. So I'm definitely thinking about that. And Regis Christian Skupikhe should be alive today, and Chantal Moore should be alive today. And it's here in Tuckeronto, it's a gorgeous, sunny sort of summer day. And that that heat of the uprisings I'm feeling on my skin today.
2: It's a beautiful vision. But before we dive into the activism, um, we'd like actually to play a little game with both of you in terms of uh, how you perceive each other as artists. Um, so, Trina, you want to start?
0: Yeah, so Cyrus, how did you first respond to Rodney's work and what drew you to what he does?
3: Okay, the one I'm going to tell you the moment that I... I knew that Rodney Deverlis was put on this Earth to move and to transform our world and our spaces. I programmed him into this show that was called Black Mystic, that was at the A.G.O. and it was Lockarama, the Black Queer and Trans Stage at Pride, programming the space. And I said, Rodney, will you come and do a dance performance? Uh, do something movement. Do some. Do something. Anything. You know, on this theme of Black Mystic. And and he said, Yeah, yeah you know, t- totally. And 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 sort of went away and did his Rodney magic. And uh, Rodney was living in Calgary, so it's not like I saw the previews. I had no idea what to expect and this brilliant artist they got in their car they drove from calgary to tuckeranto got out of the car dusted themselves off put on their dance clothes went into the AGO and did this performance that brought the entire house down. This jazz performance that featured movement, that featured uh, vocalization, that featured um, interactive technology with all of these repeated gestures that we were so familiar with, from Hands Up, Don't Shoot, uh, from Protest, from Trayvon Martin, from all of these movements. You know, this this image of this Black person in a car being stopped that was sort of repeated on all of these video screens that were all around the dance performance. And this room full of 5,000 people, you know, pouring out of the galleries, people who couldn't even see in the room, all mesmerized watching this movement. And, And then the title, In Your Eyes... I saw the sparkle of gunpowder. So everything about this performance from the title to the movement was just so perfect. And it was just so what we needed. This was 2017. This was after the fires were burning. This was this moment where we needed this. And I said, this human, this human has something to say. Uh, And I was was converted from that moment.
1: I
0: have the chills.
3: Goosebumps.
2: Cyrus. <laughs> uh, are you shy? Are you shy, Rodney?
1: Oh, I mean right now after he was done. Like, ah! <laughs> Oh my God. This is a work
0: site. Yeah, and Rodney, what was your first experience of Cyrus's work or something about Cyrus's work that that really resonated with you?
1: So there's like two moments actually. Um, I had, you know, Cyrus is on the has been a long time um organizer with uh Black and Blackness Yes, which the, the largest running pride stage. Um it's the, the black queer magic. It's like the 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 apex of pride, pretty much. The space had always like been filled with um this sort of like mix of Afro with activist aesthetics, putting things on street posts, the ways that we sort of adorn, um, we adorn the road, the way that we adorn our streets and our presence. And I always felt as if the visuals actually brought us into the moment, brought us into ourselves, brought us into our our communities. It wasn't until I got to know you that I actually learned that you did the work for Blanco and just like, ah, all of this piece together. And then my first full, 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 full exhibition that I saw of yours was at the AGO and it was your activist portraits. These sort of really intimate, larger than life building length, like from the top, from the ceiling down, sketches of of these organizers and activists in our communities, people that had not um, that that hadn't been featured in this particular way, and to see you capture their humanity, their intimacy, their personalities, um, their depth, being able to see all of those very much was the moment where I was like, okay, Sai, like you went, you went playing.
2: I love the uh, the energy and the love in your relationship. It's quite beautiful. It's quite beautiful. It actually also comes through uh, the book. So I have it. I have Until We Are Free, Reflections on Black Lives Matter in Canada. So my first question is very simple. What was the intention behind putting together essays about the movement for this book? And we'll dive into a few of the essays. So Cyrus, maybe you can start.
3: Yeah, we wanted to um, tell our own story. I mean, so many people had started telling their, their perspective and their vantage point of our story, but we hadn't really had a chance to do that. So we wanted an opportunity to do that, and we wanted to have an opportunity for our community to say hey, this is what happened. We rarely get to hear from BIPOC activists in the struggle while the struggle is actually happening. And so this book was a chance for community members to say, this is what it's like to be a mother in the movement. You know, this is what it's like to be a disabled activist in the movement. And just to think through all of these questions that community members have been doing in this movement for decades and then through this uh, particular movement for the last, you know, six years, right? So it was an opportunity to give voice back to community and say. Hey, let's have a chance for us to actually tell our own story.
2: What I feel really comes through the, the essays that I've read, Rodney, is uh, the queerness of Black Lives Matter. So, is that something that's representative of the movement? Is it only in Toronto? What's the intersection between queerness and Black Lives Matter?
1: I mean, this is reflective of the movement all over the world. I mean, there is something around those of us who have the most to lose are often the very first ones in the front lines. It's always been black trans folk, black queer folks, black disabled folks, black folks from the margins, black migrants that have always been the very first one, the most vocal to um, to talk about the things that affect us and impact us, and so BLM all across the board is particularly in Toronto, particularly in Canada. Um, the folks who built, who created the sort of brickwork for this movement, or Black trans folk, or Black queer folk, Black non-binary peoples, and this is the same with the states as well. You know, the folks that had started BLM in the states were three Black queer women and. And that we sort of really wanted to reject the the old respectability politic of time past. We want to sort of reject the belief that it's only cisgendered Christian uh, Black men that actually deserve advocacy. Um, And that in many ways embedding and entrenching our identities and our very existence into the fabric of the organizing has been um, our guiding, um, guiding rudder in many ways. Like, we're hella queer, y'all. Like, <laughs> we really, yeah. we really, really are. And I do think that that is forgotten. And um, we sort of believe that, like, none of us are free until we're all free.
0: You've mentioned, you know, the start of BLM in 2013, you know, which we sort of saw come to the mainstream when um, Trayvon Martin's murderer was acquitted. Um, I'm wondering if you can each take us back to that moment where this movement really came to the surface and where were you at in your own personal journeys and activisms at that moment in time? (coughs) Cyrus, if you'd like to start.
3: For me, in 2013, what stands out is uh, when the Zimmerman verdict came out, we organized this candlelight vigil at um, Riverdale Park. And a lot of people came and there was an open mic and there was people wrote letters. And um, and I and it, and it felt like a moment. It felt like the beginning of something. For me, it was just this, you know, this this incredible opportunity to see uh the fruits growing on a a tree that had been watered for for decades, long before I had become an activist. There were Black people in this country who were trying to make change and who were dreaming of a day where there would be the kind of public conversation that Black Lives Matter Toronto was able to create in the city around Blackness. You know, to me as an abolitionist, to be living in this moment where so many people are having the conversation we've been trying to have for decades, this feels like such a beautiful moment Tonight, I mean, Rodney, you can t- talk about that coldest, coldest night of the year when we first gathered. Um, but like, what, what a moment. And to come to here, it's really beautiful.
0: Yeah, Rodney, would you like to tell us about that moment and yeah, where you were at around that time?
1: Like Sai, I remember that that Riverdale, that, that, that vigil that y'all organized, Sai. I remember it was the coldest day (laughs) at that point. (laughs) Like end of November, like it had snowed, it had lightly rained, it had hailed at one point. (laughs) It was like the full, the full gamut of of Canadiana. Um, (laughs) and I don't know. I had I don't think I've ever, I don't think I had ever been in a space that's that was so charged that I think we all knew why we were all there. Every single person, like all, everybody who was in that space, not just even the organizers, everyone, we understood that there was also a a point of no return. We also had understood that there was a lot of groundwork that was built by our OGs, by our elders. I think it's really important what you mentioned, Sai, around um, the sort of like lineage that we draw from in many ways, and that This iteration of this movement, of this Black liberation movement, it's it's an iteration that's actually built on many past iterations and that ever since there's been carceral systems meant to... Um, to target us. There had always been black resistance. And I don't even know if you can, if you, if, you, if you felt this Cyrus for the first couple of years, it just feels like everything aligned. It was both our ancestors and our descendants and our elders yeah. and ourselves and our communities and everything sort of aligning, telling us all, not just the organizers, but the community to like keep going. And that um, sort of, I don't from that impetus from like the creating of the opportunity I don't think it's, the momentum has never stopped. And it wasn't, I, I think what was perhaps magical about, about when we talk about 2013, 2014, is that really people organized themselves. It was community that actually recognized that there was a vacuum that needed to be filled. And we all sort of wanted or desired, not the permission, but the encouragement to tell each other, all of us, all of us as black folk here in Canada, to, to demand more. Yeah,
3: absolutely and I'm so thankful that you brought in our ancestors and our great grandchildren because I really do think that there is something about this work being rooted in futurity and in uh, a sense that we exist in the past, the present and the future and that that is actually maybe something that we don't always talk about but is a core part of this work is actually being able to imagine that a better world was possible and then going and going and getting it
2: Black Lives Matter bringing the Pride Parade to a halt with a controversial protest. A mid-intersection sit-in, stopping the parade. The
3: march to a halt for at least 30 minutes. Still. And they had
1: a list of demands, correct, that they presented the uh, Pride organization? Here was a uh, commitment to Black queer youth, double funding for Blockorama. It
3: also included a demand to ban police floats from future parades. Pride's Celebrate executive director. Pride. So today we held Pride accountable for their anti-Blackness, for the anti-indigeneity for the fact that we have been pushing the margins way too long.
1: We are not telling individual cops in ritual that they can't participate. What we are saying is that the presence of seven police forces creates an unsafe situation for a number of uh, marginalized communities. What?
0: So a pivotal moment for the movement in Canada is, of course, the interruption of the Pride March in Toronto on July 3rd, 2016. We are about to commemorate the fifth anniversary of that day, which I believe will go down in Canadian history as a pivotal moment for Black Canadians and the queer movement. Um, For people who weren't present that day, can you sort of paint a picture of what happened and what your demands were and how the organizers responded?
3: I have an interesting perspective or vantage point from it because it was actually just before I officially joined the BLMTO team and I was working with Blockorama and Black Lives Matter had been named the Honored Group, which means that you get to do a couple of things. You get to lead the parade. You also get to you know, set the stage for how the Trans March goes and how the Dyke March goes and you know, be involved in some of those decisions and pushing for particular things. And so very smartly, Black Lives Matter immediately got in touch with the two black groups that had been working with Pride for the longest, which was Black Queer Youth or BQI and Blockorama Blackness, yes. And so we uh, started planning uh, together and you you did consultations and checked to sort of see, and we decided to, uh, it's a very simple idea that Black Lives Matter had, uh, but a radical one. What if in the middle of a festival that's campaign slogan literally was, you can sit with us, what if we sat down and in fact, sat in and said, you know, let's make change uh, for Black people, let's make change for Black queer communities, let's make, let's this this needs to look different than it currently looks. And so, you know, together we had craft, crafted this list of demands that included addressing the horrible prison and police roadshow that the Pride Parade had become, um, and, uh, you know, address, address demands around funding for Blackness, yes, and Blockarama, funding for BQI, access stuff around interpretation and spaces for black deaf people and this list of beautiful demands and so um black lives matter in its fullest finery did this elaborate procession i had decorated the truck with kiki atuije who's a young um uh, artist uh from nigeria who uh, together we had decorated the truck with uh, these images of ancestors that had come before us including samaya Damar and uh, sharona hall and um you know, uh, Simon and Coley and, uh, they were sort of bejeweled and these massive drawings and this truck with a deaf interpreter and a deaf performer and, uh, Antigoria gloria dancing, marching down, uh, the street to college, uh, and, uh, and young where we decided to stop and in fact sit in and maybe Rodney, you want to take it from there. Oh, I
1: think <laughs> that was perfect. That was a perfect, that was a perfect description in many ways. It. um, It was about uh, highlighting hypocrisy, to be honest with you. You know, like Pride was actually shrinking Black spaces in many different ways, limiting Blackness. The Black queer and trans community who were organizing within Pride, who were not only uh, organizing the most popular stage, the biggest stage, but were receiving the the least. And Pride was getting way more um, militarized. We had gotten to the point in which every level of policing including regional police forces that aren't even from Toronto, like Waterloo, Kitchener, Guelph, would come en masse. There were correctional buses. I don't know what what about a correctional bus is prideful. So right away, that invitation was like, hmm, so you're inviting us to a party that the regular party attendees, not just party attendees, but the Black folks that actually help you, um, design and make it actually what it is. We're getting pushed out, but we were getting, we were getting honored. And so one of our tactics, uh, one of our action tactics is a Trojan horse. Um, and so we accepted the honored group and, you know, some people in our community were like, do you know what's happening with pride? Why could you accept the honored group? And we were like, we know, we know. tell there's there's a plan. You know, the plan required us to go along with it up until the last end. It was nerve-wracking, like the nerve-wracking oh, yeah. experience yeah. of of knowing that in many ways that we were ready to stay there. Um Folks would have not had a pride that year. Like we had, we were ready to stay, to stay there all day um, because pride is not smart car and Google and Nike. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we, we wanted to let folks know that we didn't, we were not going to be your mascots. And up until that moment of the action, I think they thought they had us. And so this pride action was also part of a broader Conver- a, a, a beginning of a broader conversation with all of us actually questioning ourselves. Do we actually need like Do we, do we actually need a pride that's like this? Do we actually need heavy police presence out of pride? What does that actually look like to envision something uh, elsewhere? And what does it look like to actually bring back a sense of protest to pride?
0: So, As we mentioned, this summer is the five-year anniversary of this moment. If you'd like to speak about, you know, where we're at five years later, what Pride looks and feels like for you right now? Is it something you still want to be a part of? And yeah,
1: just generally. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like Pride is just something that's so you always have to negotiate with yourself depending on the year and that I'd actually... I removed Pride Toronto from Pride for me. Like those two, we are two very separate entities, and nobody will get to take my pride away. You feel me? Like it's my birthright. Um, it's it's it, it, it's part of my humanity. It's it's very much p- part of what defines me as a as a black queer person. And so, I we are getting more and more in a place in which people are recognizing that it's actually within us to create Pride. You know, like I think that we all, often from marginalized communities, we we have we need. We, not permission, but we once we give each other the encouragement to do something, it often opens up a, a, a ripple effect. I also think, to be honest with you, for Pride has, and this is a much broader conversation on Pride, but there's a part of me that's like, who are we doing this for? <laughs> who are we doing this for, right? That a lot of the criticism that we got from 2016 was mostly by queer folk who were like, embarrassed for this is how I'm reducing it. Right. That are like, Oh, how, how, how could you make us look like that in front of the straights, in front of the mainstream, in front of the politicians, like there's this, like, you know, like we, we so much want to sanitize queerness, that we want to clean up the mess. We want to make it a package package and boughtable like for four straight hetero patriarchal normative people and so that is part of the reason in many ways that we're more than willing to like shave off the edges of pride and make it not about protest make it not about resistance no demands whatsoever it's just a party and then for me that's just to appease the, the very folks who actually have no stake in our own community and our own well-being and in fact it's 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 appeasing a mainstream that, for many ways, has kept us othered, and so I do think that that action for me was a reminder. And five years later, a reminder again that like when we say even the chance whose streets are street, we can say the same thing: whose pride our pride, and that ultimately we ain't doing this shit for anybody but us. And so if there are issues that are a priority to be talked about by our communities, those should be those should those should be the things that should be at the very front of the table because queerness is is inevitably tied to fucking up a script.
0: Part of what you were describing um, sort of brings to mind this quote that I saw you cite in an interview, Cyrus. Um, It's a quote from Tony Cade Bambara, and um, it's, the role of the artist is to make revolution irresistible. And hearing you talk about what took place at Pride in 2016, like, that is, to me, irresistible. Um, So I'm wondering now, five years later, What are the changes that you've seen since that moment and how does it relate to this idea of making revolution irresistible?
3: Yeah, Tony K. Bambera, she said it in 1982, and she said in particular it was the role, the role of artists from oppressed or marginalized communities was to make the revolution irresistible. And I believe that, and that's what roots my entire artistic practice. Um, and so that's essentially what we were doing. We were creating a revolution that was so possible so probable, so easy to get involved in, that so many people got on board and we could sort of see that transformation. Now, as somebody who's very in, engaged and involved in Black, and Queer, Black queer and Trans organizing in Toronto, there is a lot of work to still be done. There is so much work to still be done. There's deeply rooted white supremacy and a lot of work to happen within queer and trans communities to make it a safe space for, for Black uh, people to be. Uh, there still is a lot of denial about the fact that we quote unquote built this, that it was Marsha P. Johnson, that it was Sylvia Rivera, that it was these BIPOC folks, but in particular black trans women who who built this movement. Uh, There's still a lot of denial about that. So there's still a lot of work to be done, while at the same time, I personally have had uh, folks reach out to me who were on a diametrically opposite position in 2016. And they've said, you know what, I've realized, I've come, you know, I've come, I've I've shifted my position. And so I think that that is this irresistible revolution is that more and more people are realizing, hey, wait a minute. And, And this is why we saw that action in 2016 have a ripple around the world prides around the world were kicking police out of their festivals. You know, this was a conversation whose time had come. And I think that that's what I'm so excited about right now is to sort of say, okay, let's look at this moment that we're in right now. What do we want our pride to look like? what's the conversation right now? Now that people are realizing we don't need police, uh, you know, in this prison roadshow that the, that it was, you know, and also, where are the other spaces where there's a prison roadshow and a police roadshow that we need to maybe clean house? Look at Carabana. I mean, for every one Black person, you see five police. So, I mean, there are other places where we can look and say, hey, we need to take policing out of these environments in order for people to actually enjoy the festival, enjoy the party, enjoy uh, that whatever it is, you know? So, that's the moment that we're in in 2021 it's like fertile ground or something and let's water the seeds that were already planted by our ancestors so i'm also thinking when we do eventually have a pride in real life again which hopefully will be next year i think it's gonna we're gonna be asking ourselves some really hard questions from the beginning we can't just have the same old same old people are saying loud and clear we don't want to just quote unquote go back to normal want something different so let's dream it up
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for taking
1: this time. No problem, will no probably no appreciate it, y'all. Hopefully y'all got enough.
3: Thank you, thank you. I enjoyed the rest <laughs> of it. Have a good rest of, it. of the day. Bye, Rodney.
0: You know, I've sort of leaned into being a pessimist over the last few months, but I have to say speaking to Rodney and Cyrus was genuinely so uplifting. I highly recommend that everyone goes and follows Cyrus and Rodney. You can find Cyrus on Instagram at Cyrus Marcus, and you can find Rodney at Rodney They're both also part of a group of activists who have created the Wild Seed Center for Art and Activism. It's an incredible multi-purpose space that's intended to cultivate the most transformative and radical ideas from Toronto's diverse black communities. Their book, Until
2: We Are Free, Reflections on Black Lives Matter in Canada, is available wherever good books are sold. Honestly, this book should be mandatory for every Canadian. I've learned so much uh, through the essays of Patrice Cullors, Jayana Khan, Robin Maynard. And if you want more information on Black Lives Matter, you should check out blacklivesmatter.ca. Obsession. obsession.
0: What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? What are you obsessed with? So my obsession this week is a. Uh I wouldn't say lifelong obsession, but it's a recurring one. It's Wendy Williams. Of course. The best talk show, the best daytime talk show on television. For anyone who doesn't know who Wendy Williams is, Wendy actually started off as a radio DJ in New York City. She was sort of known as like the female Howard Stern of the hip hop world and just, you know, is problematic. Wendy is problematic. And it's part of the entertainment. (laughs) Basically, it's a talk show.
1: Live from New York City, it's the Wendy.
0: There's usually a couple of celebrity guests, some like Tabby shopping segment, but the heart of the show is the first like 20 minutes where it's just <laughs> Wendy <laughs> sitting on a chair doing hot topics which she stole from the view like completely unapologetically. But Wendy's hot topics are all it's all celebrity gossip and it ranges from real stars like Jennifer Lopez to like reality TV stars the the other day she had Aaron Carter on the show as a guest and she thought Aaron's brother Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys she thought Nick was from One Direction. Your brother was a member of One Direction was it? Wait what what group? Which is like six 18 years but it, after, says, but it
2: says so many things about, like, boy band culture, manufactured
0: pop, just white guys totally. kind of all looking. She thought, she, was, she thought New Carter was hired styles, basically. Basically. she's the one who famously called Dua Lipa Dula Peep. There's a woman that you know as
1: Dua La Huh? She, uh, her name's Dua Lipa. Dua Lipa. Pe- Dua uh, yeah. But you call her Dua Lipa. Peep. Dua Lipa, I'm sorry.
0: And now everyone calls Dua Lipa Dua Lipa, which is amazing. It's just a guilty pleasure and it's so much fun. And I love her wigs. Every single day she's wearing a different wig. Her outfits are fantastic. Like she can go from athleisure to like a full on gown in like the span of three days. <laughs>
2: I live for I it. I mean, what I love about Wendy is also that she, first of all, is not trying to be friends with the guests. Yeah. Like, she is, she stays very distant yes. emotionally. She's very disconnected from the guests. You know, she loves her gays. She loves her black ladies. And she loves to, she talks to people in the studio, but she doesn't, she talks to them, but never really listens back to what they have to say.
0: Right, exactly. And she get like, uh, don't forget, like, she gets called out and in trouble a lot, like, mm-hmm. very often because... You know, she's talking for, like, 25 minutes. It's totally stream of consciousness. This is not (laughs) scripted. She's not reading off a teleprompter. Like, she very often puts her foot in her mouth. But I think we forgive Wendy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone really wants to see Wendy get canceled because we know where her heart is. And she's just trying to entertain us and keep us laughing.
2: I, I absolutely agree with
0: that obsession. So what are you obsessed with?
2: Well, I've been doing a lot of driving recently. Um, I have my mom's car. So I made this driving playlist that's called Adult Contemporary Drive. Um, <laughs> which we're going to share in the Facebook group.
0: We all need to have access to this playlist. Um,
2: and I wanted to share with you a few of the songs that are on this yes. list. Um, so just to get uh, my, my head state right now is I, I'm, I am looking to be moved by adult contemporary music from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. Um, you know, just like staples. I'm feeling extremely nostalgic, so this is where it's coming from. Um, so I'll share a few of the songs with you that are on the list. I just yes, want please. your reaction. Because
0: I also have a playlist that sounds very similar called Sappy. <laughs> because people forget that like the really over-the-top, corny love songs, the, the melodies are so powerful. But it's, it's a- a mix of
2: like love songs but also songs to drive fast. Like one example right. would be Missing by Everything But The Girl. Oh, amazing. The, huge, the Club remix yes. from 1996. That's an amazing <laughs> one. <laughs> um Strong Enough Shell Crow. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's one of my favorite Shell Crow songs. Are you strong I have a few Tina. Yeah. So in- instead of going with Simply the Best or What's Love Got to Do with It, I went with When the Heartache Is Over, <laughs>
3: <laughs> which was Tina's attempt
0: to do a share, believe, A share, believe in the a Whitney same producers. And the Whitney. Uh, I love that song. Uh, yeah, I love this song. When the heartache is over, I know I won't be missing you.
2: Do you remember John Cicada? Yes. <laughs> So I put just another day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you're just driving, (laughs) listening to these. In the burbs. Burbs slash country where my mom lives. (laughs) And... Are you like crying as you're driving? I have, I have have cried too. Are you
2: singing along? I'm singing along. I'm driving fast on seals crazy. Are
0: you honking at people? I'm honking (laughs) at people on rock set. It must've been love. (laughs) I love it. Again, we will share that playlist with all of you. I can't wait to listen to it. It's time once again for our favorite part of the show, The Credits. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Nantali Ndongo is our contributing producer.
2: Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts.
0: Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Fi Studio. We are recording this season at Tomei Park Studio. Cancer season is here. It is my birthday. In a few days. Ah. I'm waiting for you to say happy birthday
2: oh
0: (laughs) my god it's not your birthday yet
2: our newest episode of Lucky Stars the web series that we do with Extra Magazine is out so we roast uh, some of the famous cancer
0: icons the video is hilarious make sure to check that out at Extra Magazine -Magazine xtramagazine.com and on YouTube of course follow our Instagram account at Chosen Family Show please recommend it to a friend. Give us a rating. We haven't had a five-star rating in a while, so make us feel good, you guys.
2: And we're taking a short break. We'll be back in a few weeks with fresh new episodes of Chosen
0: Family. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.